Before the sermon this morning, I'd like to tell you a story, a story that begins in November of the year 2015, when the pastoral staff, the church board, and the finance committee of the Walla Walla University Church discovered the amount needed to fully fund our church budget for 2015, and the key number was right about $202,000. We had left a mountain a bit higher than in years past. Well, the story developed, and you may remember this particular image that you see on the screen in mid-December, where green being the good color started to take over part of red's territory. A little bit later, uh, this on the 22nd of December, and green yet again making a bit of an advance. Later, um, we saw this number on the 29th day of December, following the last Sabbath of the year, and green had made still headway, but nonetheless, red still held some pretty strong territory. And I'm a man of faith, but I will admit to a couple of um, somewhat fitful, sleepless nights, somewhere between the 29th and 30th of the month, um, until this. Not only did we meet budget, we shattered it. We blew right by it as a congregation. And uh, uh, wow. Jesus says explicitly, if you want to know about the heart of a human being, if you'd like to know about the heart and soul of a congregation, a pretty good way to measure it is with treasure. Does he not say that? And so I say to you this morning, as we have set yet another record, and as all the other offering totals come in over the next couple of weeks, I, it looks clear, setting yet another record of financial generosity for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not waiting for the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is being poured out right now. We are not waiting for a day of revival sometime in the future. Revival is happening right now. The heart of this congregation for the poor for the grace of Jesus Christ, transforming our valley and our globe, is alive and well in the present moment. I am bullish not only on today, but I am exceptionally bullish on the days to come in this congregation, for whatever God is up to by His Spirit is electric in the hearts of the people who are sitting in this sanctuary today and in other places. I cannot thank you enough. It is important at least once a year to say how valuable it is that we have a strong, responsible board, a careful finance committee that wisely plans for our future like Joseph of old, cares for the facility, spends wisely, invests with intelligence. And to all of you who serve in those capacities, I thank you. I'm going to say something else that maybe is not said up front too often. To those whom God has gifted uniquely with the ability to make more money 
than on average. In this congregation, I tell the story wherever I go. You'll never know who has money and who doesn't. It's such a beautiful group of people. But behind the scenes, I want to say thank you. Just as we are thankful for those musicians who've been given an extra dose of music to bless us in unusual ways, you know who you are. For those in this church who have been blessed uniquely with the music of material resources, on behalf of all of us, I want to thank you for the important music that you pump in to this congregation quietly, humbly, without any applause. Thank you. And I also want to say to the rest of us, there is something about the monthly, month in, month out, perhaps small faithfulness that does much not only for what God is up to here, but there's something that happens inside here. And I want to thank you those of us that may not have the gift of that sort of music at a different level, for faithfulness, for commitment, week upon week, month upon month, watching our hearts transformed. This is a fantastic congregation by God's grace. And so we do not applaud ourselves, do we? No. All the glory goes there, and there's a wonderful medley of applause that has been written. And I invite you all to stand with me as our good brother Craig leads us in the definitive applause that we sing to our Maker this time each year. Please stand with me as we sing. You may be seated. And a moment of connection to that great celebration. You may remember last week that an old plastic brown bucket appeared, and the story was told of young people at Lincoln High School who have nothing to eat on the weekends. That bucket through the generosity of the Spirit in this congregation, filled up with nearly $4,000 that enables people to eat, the children of God, in this valley for many weeks to come. And uh, I just wanted uh, Aaron Hops, who is an honors student at Walla Walla University and who is overseeing uh, a big piece of this mission, and Marcy Knopf, the principal of the school, to share very briefly with you how this all works, because I think it would be good to know. Aaron? 
Thank you. Um, as he said, the honors program has taken an interest in Lincoln High. He mentioned that there are some students at Lincoln High who are unable to have food over the weekends. And so the honors program, particularly in conjunction with the religion and a social context class, has decided to start preparing backpacks every Friday afternoon full of food, about 15 backpacks just like this one, to distribute at Lincoln over the weekend. So thank you. I, I love this connection because we are funding the purchase of food and then students on this campus in partnership with this church are doing all the assembly work and making sure that those get delivered into the right hands. So I think this is a really neat connection that we have together. Marcy? Well, first of all, I have to extend a huge thank you from the Lincoln family to the Walla Walla University family, church family. I was absolutely humbled when Alex shared last, this last Tuesday um, the amount that was given. So I'm very excited to be working with the Walla Walla University students here. Um, currently we have 81% of our families qualify for free or reduced lunch, which means that they're living at or below the poverty level. Um, we've had 22 students so far this school year who have found themselves homeless, either themselves or with their family. In fact, just over the Christmas holiday, we were seeking housing for six of our students or families because they were evicted over the holidays. So this is a huge blessing to have these backpacks each weekend. I am also incredibly excited about the partnership with the university through the education department, through the honors department as well, where we can be providing, um, they're going to be providing healthy after-school activities for our students to engage in, and I am just excited right now to step back and watch as God takes the lead in this mission work. Mm. Thank you very, very much for sharing this morning. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll try to work on it that way and then resort to the throat if need be. Okay. The American frontier woodsman Daniel Boone was once asked if he had ever been lost in the woods, to which he replied, no, but there was one time that I was perplexed for a few days. <laughs> we find ourselves in the first moments of 2016 in perplexing woods. Uncertain economy, markets roiled even at this hour. The physical environment threatened. A volatile political culture, racial strife, disease, human drama. Hitting closer to home, we also know that the project of higher education itself in America is threatened. And perhaps even closer yet, in our own homes, the visitation of disease, which causes such anguish and pain. Perplexing times, these woods that we live in. And so we turn in the new year afresh to Jesus. And we begin by looking at a story in Mark chapter 4, portrayed so beautifully by Rembrandt, this storm on the Sea of Galilee. 
Particularly today, let us focus on some bracing questions therein. Beginning in verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Bracing question number one, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Obama, don't you care if we drown? Wall Street, don't you care if we drown? Banks too big to fail, don't you care if we drown? Healthcare conglomerates, don't you care if we drown? Big government, big business, society as a whole, don't you care if we drown? God, yes, God, look at us, don't you care if we drown? It seems that we have emotional connection to those disciples on that stormy sea. Wondering, asking, demanding, with both frustration and maybe even a little anger to the powers that be. Don't you care that we're drowning? Don't you care that we are in such trouble? The squall is on the lake. The waters are coming over the boat. Everything is about to go down. The disciples are stressed, and they cry out to the power that be, don't you care? You're just sitting there sleeping. Fresh off the press this week, Esquire magazine, in conjunction with NBC News, <clears throat> a survey of some 3,000 Americans, the title of the project, American Rage. I read to you and leave in all caps straight from the magazine, indicating the anger, their conclusions. We, the people, are livid. The body politic is burning up. And the anger that courses through our headlines and news feeds about injustice and inequality, about marginalization and disenfranchisement, about what they are doing to us, shows no sign of abating. Esquire teamed up with NBC News to survey 3,000 Americans about who's angriest, what's making them angry, and who's to blame. Let's begin with the big reveals. Half of all Americans are angrier today than they were a year ago. White Americans are the angriest of all. There are depths and dimensions, dark corners and subtle contours to our national mood. And setting aside the issue of who actually has the right to be angry and about what, these pages are neutral territory. Everyone has allowed their beef. We found three main factors shaping American rage. Number one, experience. People get angry when they don't like how they and theirs are treated. Second, empathy. 
Women now report a greater rise in anger than men over the past year, more likely than men to be angry about the treatment of others. And finally, third, expectations. Are you disappointed? Do you feel stifled and shortchanged and sold a bill of goods? Then you're probably pretty angry. Some of the specific findings in these slides, over two-thirds of us say that on a daily basis, we see something in the news that makes us angry. Half of us are more angry than we were a year ago. Over one half of us believe that we are financially not as well off as we thought that we would be. Esquire asks, how angry do each of these imaginary headlines make you? The more red, the angrier we are. Bill Cosby cleared of all charges. CEO resigns admits to committing massive consumer fraud. Congress more dysfunctional than ever. More than 100,000 couples have wed since Supreme Court ruling. Latest school shooting leaves six dead, nine wounded. Cop shoots unarmed black man. It's official whites becoming minority in the U.S. as Hispanic population surges. 2016 on track to be the warmest year on record. Caitlyn Jenner's wedding of the century. And then they asked, well, what groups have the right to be angry about how they're treated? From evangelical Christians, Muslims, atheists, blacks, women, Hispanics, white men, the LGBT individuals, community, and then about a quarter of us say, well, nobody has the right to be angry at all. Perhaps this instructive in this setting, nearly half of the American population saying that Christianity is becoming a thing of the past, losing its grip. Boy, that doesn't, doesn't that just make us mad? And finally, I think really the punchline of the survey, half of all Americans saying the death of our American dream. Everything that we dream of is going away, and we are angry. Everything that we hope for is fading in a storm, and somebody needs to pay. Teacher, don't you care if we drown, the disciples say. Verse 39, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Bracing question or bracing questions number two, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The real drama in this story, the tension. How is it that Jesus is sleeping in this massive storm? The word for storm in the passage, the Greek, laelaps, means this. A whirlwind, a tempestuous wind, 
a violent attack of wind, a squall, never a single gust nor a steady blowing wind, however violent, but a storm breaking forth from black thunder clouds in furious gusts with floods of rain and throwing everything topsy-turvy. Some of you know that the Sea of Galilee, sitting nearly 700 feet below sea level, with mountains rising some 2,000 feet around it, a recipe for the interaction of wet and dry air, hot and cold air, high pressure, low pressure, not uncommon to have a furious storm. So how is it that Jesus is sleeping in this storm? The contrast between Jesus himself and what he is up to and the disciples is striking. They are upset. They are angry with the conditions. Somebody better pay. Their lives are going down. They are furious. And Jesus sleeps. At first glance, it appears that the activity of the disciples makes the most sense. Why is Jesus sleeping. The questions he asks of them are probing. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus does not want to wake up. He is awakened, and he is aroused with these piercing queries. He says to the disciples, where is your faith? Where is your religion? Where is your doctrine? Where is the theology I've been teaching you? Where is your Christianity? For if amid a storm you are upset, you are angry, you are out of control, Jesus is calling into question the very legitimacy of their religion. Where is your faith, Christians, if you are acting like this? You know, I wonder sometimes if amid all of these global tsunamis, if religious people, even Christians, can be the worst at reacting and overreacting to the climatic conditions. I wonder sometimes if it's those of us who claim to be Christians who are worrying about the present storms, predicting and worrying about the future storms, but in the process, we are creating storms through our own stress and angst. I came across an article recently written by Christian, a member of the faith tradition that many of us share. I just wrote down some of the words that appeared in the article. Satan, deception, Hindus, Buddhists, humanists, atheists, secular, end time, counterfeit, confederacy, communists, Marxists, China, disguise, Confucius. And over and again, Satan was referred to as a master. And at the end of the article, there was this warning specifically to Adventists. Most of you, the author said, think that you're safe, but you're really not because Satan is a master.
And I got done reading that article. Yes, current storms. Yes, the prediction of future storms. But worst off, writing this kind of stuff, creating tsunamis and earthquakes and horrible weather conditions all on their own. Jesus says to his disciples, where is your faith? He says to them, if you are creating fear in a storm, if you are stirring up fresh storms all the time, your Christianity is no longer legitimate. Your theology is no longer Jesus. Your doctrine is no longer of the spirit of the true God. Jesus says to his disciples, waking up from the slumber, you are missing the point. My brothers and sisters, I think the pastoral message of this passage is not, ah, Jesus calms the storms of life. No. Jesus wanted to remain asleep, it seems. No, I think the pastoral message of this passage is, can we remain calm in the storm? Can we, like Jesus, trust the Father whether we float or whether we go down? Provocative, bracing questions. You know, I think professor of biology, Jim Nessler, had it right. Oh, yes, when you post things on Facebook, they can be used publicly. <clears throat> you notice that he's passed a sign, apparently on some hiking trail, strenuous beyond this point, and he brags, I'm beyond the point. <laughs> We're beyond the point. Since the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, and left the Garden of Eden, all of us as human beings are beyond the point. We are now in strenuous territory. We now find ourselves in a world with environmental and economic and racial and societal and human strife. The storm has been, the storm is, the storm shall continue to be. This is where we find ourselves. This is the point. But Jesus says we are not to be storm mongers. We are not to be pushers of panic buttons, but rather we are to be people of peace. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Interesting, after the weather does clear up, they are terrified. There's a whole other sermon in that, that perhaps when one lives in perpetual terror, it doesn't really matter how good things really are. Who is this? 
even the wind and the waves obey Him. I will submit to you that they are now focused on the right person. The who is Jesus. But they are amazed, I believe, for all the wrong reasons. Their goals, their aspirations aren't strong enough. So on Monday of this week, I was getting ready for work. And my five-year-old, William, was engaging me in conversation, which began with this declaration. Daddy, I'm almost as tall as you are. <clears throat> I did not have the heart to tell him that he really needed taller goals. <laughs> that his dreams were too short. You see, the amazement at Jesus that he had the power to change the weather. Oh, far too short, my friends. The astonishment ought to have been, who is this? that he can sleep peacefully in the storm. You see, when we cheer the accomplishment of a church budget, when we cheer evidence that God has somehow changed circumstances for the better, these things are okay. But they are far too small. For it is not cheering God who can change things on the outside, but it is cheering a God who can change things on the inside that really counts. We have collective angst because the American dream is fading away. I'm not going to have as much money as I'd like to have. My life's not going to be as easy as I would like it to be. The world is not arranged as sweetly as I might dream. The, the glass sea is not as smooth as it ought to be. What happens if somebody's elected president that isn't my choice or the one? My whole life's going to fall apart. I'm going to move to a different country. Oh, my friends, Christians, our goals sometimes, our aspirations are way too small. The amazement, the amazement ought to be, who is this? Who trusts his father so much, ah, he can sleep in a storm. Perhaps we pray, Lord, change these circumstances. But a far stronger prayer, God, may I have peace amid these circumstances. A stronger prayer, a bigger vision, a bolder view. I don't think that Jesus perhaps ever actually wanted to be awakened. And oh, what a masterpiece Rembrandt could have given us. Think of it. All of the disciples clustered near Jesus falling asleep 
a group of men all cuddled together at the breast of their Lord. Whether they stayed afloat or whether they went down, sweet peace, trusting the Father in heaven. That would have been a picture. And so it is powerful, I think. Troy Fitzgerald starting a new Sabbath school in Christ, the title. Patty McCoy, a powerful sermon last night, trusting Jesus alone, the new season of Vespers. The themes in Circle Church, the week of worship on the, apart, on the part of students this coming week, telling stories of faith and trust in God. I've been going through a stack of sermon manuscripts to be presented at the One Project next month in Seattle. The theme, the final week of Christ's life, where Jesus doesn't change the weather around him, but rather it's his incredible peace in Gethsemane, in rejection, in pain, in suffering on the cross. The amazement of that story in a God, in a Jesus, who could remain at peace even in the most violent tumult. And all of these things tied together, our sermon series for this quarter, God's Kitchen, ingredients for a healthy soul. How to be happy, how to be at peace, how to be one with God, even in the difficult woods we find ourselves in. And today we begin simply with the word being, being, being with Jesus. A final word, I invite you to look at the back panel of your bulletin where you will find a prayer. William Bright, a 19th century British theologian, teacher, poet. I'd invite you to join me in taking this home with you and maybe once or twice or three times a day just reading it and allowing it to become your prayer, our collected prayer. At thy feet, O Christ, we lay thine own gift of this new day. Doubt of what it holds in store makes us crave thine aid the more. Lest it prove a time of loss, mark it, Savior, with thy cross. If it flow on calm and bright, be thyself our chief delight. If it bring unknown distress, Good is all that thou canst bless, only while its hours begin. Pray we keep them clear of sin. We in part our weakness know, and in part discern our foe. Well for us, before thine eyes, all our danger open lies. Turn not from us while we plead thy compassion and our need. Fain would we thy word embrace, Live each moment on thy grace. All ourselves to thee consign. Fold up all our wills in thine. 
think and speak and do and be simply that which pleases thee. Hear us, Lord, and that right soon. Hear and grant the choicest boon that thy love can e'er impart. Loyal singleness of heart. So shall this in all our days, Christ our God, show forth thy praise.